Pod Academy. In this week's podcast, Dr. Andrew Cooper, author of a new study on gay male identity, talks to Geoffrey Weeks, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Southbank University, about how gay men are developing new gay identities in a fast-changing world. The whole idea of identity has really come onto the agenda in the last 50 or 60 years. The idea of a search for identity more generally was only really discussed in the 50s for the first time in any real sense. And the emphasis on a gay identity or lesbian and gay identities is even more recent really since the 1970s. was in his 60s and he talked about how when he was growing up there were very limited um, ideas of what, what a gay man could be and I think he used the phrase that you know he thought all gay men were leather clad weirdos or um, you know there was the sort of uh, stereotypes on television of the, the camp entertainers like a lot of them mentioned people like Larry Grayson and that that was the only form of identity there was which was quite frightening. What happened today, I was at home, you see, and I was doing my hair and, you know, <laughs> messing around, and a note came under... I interviewed 21 gay men altogether, and it was just very interesting to see the, the very different experiences that those men had had, but the common link through was a lot of self-awareness and thinking about, you know, what their identity was, about their sexuality, how they, for example, relate to other family members or to uh, partners or to communities... And in a lot of cases, a sense of struggles of trying to um, actually put together some sort of coherent identity. And a lot of other writers I know have talked about successful identities, coherent identities or unified identities or a sense of self. And one of the things that the strands that I tried to pull together was, was thinking of a livable identity and how individuals, you know, in the end, they may have very different a sense of self and very different life experiences but what I saw was a common theme was everyone uh, straining to, to put together a livable identity which could mean many different things to different people. The, the language you use in a really important way suggests agency, paper, people making their own lives not in circumstances of their own choosing necessarily but nevertheless managing to in a sense invent themselves Now, some uh, recent queer theorists have questioned the whole idea of identity, seeing it as, in a sense, imposed as a trap, as an imprisonment for individuals. That's not the impression you get from reading your book, where people are creative about their lives, making their lives as as they go along. To what degree do people play with this idea of rejecting imposed identities and making their own? I think it's a really interesting point because possibly when when I started I probably assumed that there was uh, lots of the writing on this area you know, from lots of theorists is about increased freedom and the social changes that have happened over the last few decades thinking that there you know there are many more choices now that sexuality has been in flux and there are there are all sorts of fracturing even of of identity 
I, I probably started off with that assumption that you know there are so many different choices, almost a bewildering set of choices. And through the interviews, I started to build up a picture of um, what I've termed identity work, and others that have used the same term for people actually working through different choices. It's quite paradoxical, really, because there is a, a huge background, really, for example, of homophobia. And a lot of the um, men that I talked to would talk about experiences at school. Football always seemed to come through as one of the, the really strong experiences, that there was only one form of acceptable masculinity. And football was often a marker for that. And if they weren't sort of into that football culture and certain ways of behaving, maybe macho culture, then they very much felt that they, that they weren't legitimate or you know, their identity was not right and there was something wrong with them. So that sort of led to an incredible amount of creativity, individuals working through um, you know, different ways of thinking about their sense of self and whether that would be to do with gender and masculinity and femininity or um, different aspects of their life. I mean, for example, um, I, I interviewed a couple of men who were Greek Cypriots. Their experiences were very interesting of, of having different views about the, the Cypriot culture and the gay culture and the, the, the two didn't really seem to fit together. And an incredible amount of creativity in, in going through a process and um, actively constructing their identity over a period of time. Um, the one individual I remember was talking about how uh, you know realised that he was gay and rejected the Cypriot culture completely. And then a few years later, come back to it and thought, well, actually, no, there are things I like about the Cypriot culture, the, the friendship and the um, closeness and the family atmosphere and, and lots of different ways of behaving in the culture that he really liked. So he, he had to find a way of taking on those bits of the Cypriot culture that he liked and his sexuality as being gay and forging really a new path through, which is possibly quite a struggle and quite hard work. But over a period of, of years, you know, had found a way to do that, that that was acceptable for him, even if possibly others in the Cypriot community wouldn't you know, recognise that that was um, something that they would see every day. I was recently in Cyprus and I was struck very much by similarities but also differences and the differences are historical which reminds us that the identity we're talking about is an identity or identities forged in the British context with its, its history and we can't universalise from that. There are commonalities in Cyprus, words like gay are used frequently, even queer but it doesn't necessarily have the same meaning as, as we have in, in this country. So we're, we're talking about the development of specific British identities, although obviously they've been enormously influenced by what goes on in the rest of the world, especially America, but also in recent years, more generally in Europe, and the general liberalisation of attitudes in Europe. You, you mentioned gender, masculinity particularly, and homophobia, these, to my mind, are the constraints within which identity is, is forged. And different cultures have different notions of masculinity. And homophobia, although it's seen as a universal condition of hostility, is differently interpreted and differently displayed in different countries as, as well. I did look at lots of the research that had been done in other countries, and that is very helpful in immediately raising the point that we have certain priorities and ways of explaining what sexuality is and they could be very different in different cultures and it's impossible to read across to say well for example some of the the men that I interviewed the experiences they'd had of homophobia and people shouting at you know queer at them in the street and then you know in another country it might be or another situation 
that, that someone else would use the term queer to define themselves and would be very liberating. Over the course of our lives, you know, individuals, we do construct a narrative about the story of our life. And one of the dangers, I think, of that for my research was that you know, people, uh, me interviewing gay men, them telling me their stories, um, means that you know, I have to be a little bit aware that um, as they're telling me, they, they, some of these stories are perhaps well rehearsed and well thought through, and they are giving across to me quite a, a coherent story about their life. And what I found was that um, for quite a few of the men, um, it seemed as if the way they presented themselves was that their journey was perhaps now finished or they'd resolved a number of issues. And one of the things that I, I drew in was um, a, a term called fortress identities. And this was really about seeing how individuals talked about having needing an identity that they could defend. They were under attack from homophobia. And in, in really, it's in contradiction to quite a lot of the theoretical thinking that you know, as we have more freedom, lots more choices, we can do whatever we like. But actually, for, for quite a few of the men I interviewed, they were, were talking about forming something very solid and very coherent. And, for example, Dave was one of the men I interviewed. He came from a, a working-class background, and, and I think he was in his 30s. And, and he said, there are enough people knocking all sorts of lifestyles and if I haven't got an identity that I can stand up for and defend, then I'm just going to be walked all over by people in the street, by politicians, by any person that's homophobic. I think it's very important to have a strong identity that you can defend, because that's my identity. I think it just really illustrates that the context that you live in can really create a specific set of circumstances and the, you know, feeling that you really need to have something very solid, which goes against, perhaps, some of the thinking in, in contemporary life about... Um, increased freedom and choices. And that illustrates the point that you made a, a little earlier about the way in which these identities are socially formed. Social constructionism is a rather abstract term. What it means in practice, as you said, is that we have to look at the historical and social context um, in which identities become meaningful. So it's very interesting that from the 1970s, identity, fortress identity, as you discussed it, has been so central to the gay experience. But of course we've seen a revolution in many ways in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, and there has been an uneven but remarkable liberalisation, especially in the last 10 years, seen in all the changes to legislation, the discussions over same-sex or equal marriage and, and so on. The men you interviewed were brought up in a particular climate, a climate that in the 1980s saw a backlash against earlier gains and a painful reconstruction of identities from the early 90s onwards, particularly in the wake of the HIV-AIDS crisis. So your men had a particular formation. I wonder to what extent you were able to assess how identities are shifting in the light of a more liberal climate. Not necessarily the disappearance of homophobia, but it taking different forms. I think it's a really good point because you know when I started out um, investigating identity and, and homophobia and sexuality, I think um, you know one of the things I really wanted to look at was how things are changing. And you know, for example, you know in the last few years, um, the um, virtual revolution, the use of the internet, you know, this is a, this is a drastic change, and actually. Um, you know, since since I interviewed the men for this study, you know, a lot of that those developments have happened, and I think that would be another radical shift. 
But even um, when I was interviewing these men, I was trying to, um, I suppose, tease out partly the experiences they had as, as growing up and then their experiences in the current period of their life and look at what, what sort of changes. And I think there, there were big changes. As I've said, you know, lots of people talked about um, very bad experiences at school. Some of them would say that there's no way they would have come out, that they would have thought that they would have been killed even, you know, with very extreme examples. But what I found was that, um, as you suggest, homophobia you know, was taking new forms, and that it, but it was still there in, in the day-to-day lives. And, for example, I remember one of the men I interviewed talked about a, a sort of level of background or chronic homophobia that he could see in his life, and that he, he wouldn't feel comfortable walking down any street holding hands with his partner, for example. And, you know, he said he didn't think, he couldn't remember anyone particularly shouting at him or definitely had not been the victim of any violence. But it was just this underlying sort of background noise feeling that it, that it is always there, which meant that he was very self-aware and moderating his behaviour and, and considering how he should behave. Um, those, some of those aspects were still there. Um, another example was um, a few of the men that I interviewed were, were talking about their ethnicity and, and sexuality. And one of the men, Guy, who was black and gay, um, talked a lot about how his gayness and his blackness, how they might fit together. And one of the ways that I talk, talk about that is through what I call sticky identities, and individuals trying to stick together, as I mentioned in the earlier Cypriot example as well, trying to stick together different aspects of their identity. In Guy's case, he was talking about um, the concept of community and gay community, you, you might come to that with an assumption that, well, the gay community would be inclusive and there would be lots of different ways of being in a gay community. But the way he described it was quite different. Um, so he, what he said was, I suppose I feel on the periphery of gay life. My views and my approach don't fit in with mo- gay, most gay people. I think I do resent the general perception of the gay community because I don't think it includes me. It doesn't include me in terms of my race and ethnicity and background, and it doesn't include me in terms of my political social beliefs, and so I don't feel part of it. And I guess I make my own community, if I'm honest, through my friends. With my black gay friends, it is wonderful, it is celebratory almost, in being black and gay and seeing the positive in both of them. It is wonderful to be in a room full of black gay men and fuse the two and have that kind of connection with people on both levels. That's really amazing and uplifting. The, the wider culture may have changed and there have been lots of uh, changes and legal developments and there is increased freedom and I think we can say those have been very drastic changes but it's still there are still effects whether it's a chronic level of homophobia or whether it's a, a black gay man feeling he doesn't really fit in to certain aspects of gay communities I think you know we can still find examples of where individuals are being made aware of their identity and having to forge their own path through that. The, the sticky identity that you talk about is, is very close to what um, some theorists have talked about as intersectionality. We piece together our sense of ourselves from a whole range of different experiences. There are different communities, there are different experiences being structured in particular ways where some terms are dominant and others not. And we still live in a world that um, is dominated by norms of heterosexuality, again what theorists call heteronormativity. And our choices are always limited, are always constrained, are always pressured by these overarching structures. But it comes back to this important idea of community. All the evidence of your interviews is that people aren't making their identity choices in isolation. 
they're doing so in, in wider contexts of movements, of constituencies, of communities, of networks, and so on. And this brings us back to the significance, I think, of the idea of stories, of narratives, because as Ken Plummer has pointed out, the stories aren't individual stories. In a sense, they're collective stories. We build a sense of ourselves as individuals, but also a sense of who we relate to, who are like us and who are not like us, through the way we construct narratives and stories. The stories, in a sense, are community building. And many of your interviewees indeed talk about, as your black gay interviewee there does, of the way he's constructed his own life narrative and community narrative with his friends who are like him and are different from those he feels often ignore him or marginalise him. I think that's right. I mean, it it goes really to the heart of my analysis, which is about individuals actively constructing their identity. What is important about that is not to think of an individual having some kind of true, stable, core self, which they're over time trying to discover. It's much more fluid than that. It is a lifelong project, something that individuals are working on over time. And where I was quite careful in my analysis is to make sure that I I don't just sort of try and provide a a static model of identity. And I know when I was looking into how individuals see themselves and then how they relate to others around them, whether that be communities or families, colleagues in the workplace, um, it, it is impossible to sort of find a, a, you know, a model which just shows you know, how an identity is formed over time. It doesn't work in that way. It's much more nuanced. One of the, the aspects that I looked at was um, the body um, as part of that lifelong project, and, and the body really is another project. Um, and you know, part of that is looking at um, how an individual would dress and their sense of style, and also how sex would feature in their identity, um, which you know, would have different meanings to different people. But again, the body, very much like identity, from the interviews that I carried out, seems to be something that that has to be achieved. You know, we need to um, make a lot of choices about how we look and how we present ourselves in everyday life. One or two of the um, men that I interviewed talked about how the particular there's a level of self-awareness really in in the type of image they would like to project. And for example, for a few of them, they talked about using camp and humour, and this really comes back to the idea of being playful with identity and this was to do with the pleasurable side of identity you know we've talked quite a lot about constraints and restrictions and and we've mentioned freedom but you know some of them would would use camp in the workplace um, finding that it was a way of diffusing difficult situations or a way of making friendships a way of relating to other gay men that would actually just be very playful in thinking about identity playing with their masculinity and femininity and this is the, the side of identity, I think, where it, it opens out into um, different choices and where identity can be, can be different every day. The whole discussion of the body and the pleasures as well as pains it can suffer or enjoy reminds us that we construct the body. We think of it as something that's absolutely given, uh, you know, the, the bedrock, and in many ways it is. But on the other hand, bodies are modified. The whole thing about camp is that it was associated with a particular historical moment, uh, really before gay liberation. Gay liberation rejected camp, but it's never disappeared because it's playing, as you said, with masculinity, uh, with femininity and and so on. But the other side of the experience of the last uh, 
uh, few decades is that gay men increasingly have also wanted to assert their masculinity. The whole culture of working out, of going to the gym, of bodybuilding, even physical appearance of uh, of the body, um, the movement from long hair to short hair, moustaches coming and going, beards coming and going, is about the way we mould our bodies to fit in with our emergent and shifting identities. I think that's right, and I think the the project that a lot of the men I interviewed talked about, um, you know, was something that uh, you know there is that pleasurable aspect to it, but I think also for quite a few of them, it was about, for example, homophobia or the context around them, making them very aware of the project and of of how they might present themselves, how they might mould their body, and how they might mould their sense of self. And for some of these men, that really created you know, some quite serious problems. And some of them talked about um, periods of depression, real senses of struggle, being ostracised from their families, for example. And again, some of those things might relate to a particularly historical period, but still, it's not just a question of, you know, picking a, a gay identity off the shelf and just uh, uh, taking that on. It, it feels like there is still a lot of work to be done by individuals. And, you know, to create a livable sense of self, one of the I mean, I think this plays out quite well in the in the current debate about same-sex marriage, and we've seen this in lots of countries, and in the UK at the moment, you know, it's still an ongoing debate. Same-sex marriage, um, I know that um, I'd, I'd done a previous piece of research on this, and some of the people I interviewed talked about whether they would be interested in, in gay marriage or not, um, and there were obviously quite a wide range of views on that. Um, and for some, it very much felt like, no, um, becoming married would be... Um, copying heterosexual culture and, and that wouldn't be the right thing to do um, but you know the the more recent thinking would be along the lines of well um, for equality purposes you know there are a lot of positive reasons to have same-sex marriage um, that then is one choice that gay men have there isn't a hierarchy um, as far as I can see you know, it isn't that one form of gay identity is better than another there are many different intersecting um, and complex forms of identity some of which you know are forged through great struggles or whether it's a fortress identity or trying to stick together different aspects of self you know that's why i came back to the idea of a livable identity and encouraging gay men to be playful with identity and to really forge their own path to create their own identity rather than feeling that you know only this form is acceptable and i'm sure that's a debate that's that's gone on right since the beginning of of gay rights, but it's, it's something that still seems pertinent today. It's an ongoing negotiation, as, as a phrase you use. People negotiate their identities in particular circumstances. But I, I'm struck by a phrase you use um, in the book, which is about the balance between coherence and fragmentation, which brings us back to the whole issue of how important uh, identity is. Because, I mean, everyone in the world is faced by a sense of fragmentation, if all the norms they've taken for granted suddenly disappear or even gradually disappear. For example, um, what happens to a gay man who has organised his whole sense of self around his sexual attractiveness, picking up and having lots of sex and affirming himself through, through sex, and then, as we all do, grows older? Um, Friendships tend to fade away, even as you get new friendships. Your sexual attractiveness and allure begins to um, to go. How do you make up the difference? And this, to my mind, pinpoints the really important shift that's taken place. The move, it seems to me, from the early 70s 
from the emphasis on sex as the core of your identity to the idea of identity being a broader thing, embracing relationships as well. And it's in that context that I think uh, same-sex marriage has become an important issue throughout the world, not just in Britain or America or parts of uh, Europe, because that's about, yes, getting equal rights, and that's absolutely given, but also about the recognition of relationships as being important to your sense of self and sense of belonging in the world. Anthony Giddens has talked about um, the need for um, uh, ontological security, which is perhaps a slightly pompous way of saying we need to have a sense of security in who we are and where we belong. And I think the emphasis, especially since the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, of the need to affirm and have recognised the importance of our friendships, of our networks and of our intimate relationships is, in a sense, about achieving that sense of security. Um, I, you know, people do need a sense of stability and they form a coherent sense of self or at least livable identity. Relationships, whether they be friendships or family or sexual relationships, um, long-term partners, these were very much at the core of the, the project of identity that the men that I interviewed had. And um, it was really about, you know, for example, when it comes to different being in different groups, sometimes those individuals would be very much fitting into a group. They might come out and they talked about going into a, you know, a gay bar for the first time and suddenly they might sort of change their look and sort of really fitted into that particular style at that particular time. And other times it might be that, that they, they are having an influence on the people around them. And, you know, it, it's a two-way process. It might be, for example, with their family, that by their behaviours and by the things that they talk about, they are changing their family's conception of what an identity might be. So it's a, it seems to me it's, it's a constantly evolving concept, really, identity and, and a construct in people's lives. But I still think there is possibly a danger in, in that stability, in that if it, if it just goes in a particular direction... You know, over time, it might be that you know we think everything's become very liberalised and everything very free, but we might sort of look around one day and find that actually, you know, there are only sort of three acceptable forms of gay identity. So for me, it's, it's sort of trying to find this balance between you know stability, day-to-day life, and ordinary life. Social changes happening. There are lots of different choices, um, but I still think it, it can oscillate between periods of time where you know in a particular society where you have wider freedoms from choices and, and other times when actually those choices possibly narrow down um, and it may be that um, for some individuals they just don't feel they fit into, for example, you know, the way that a gay man would be uh, described. Well, you, the whole debate on uh, gay liberation since the 1970s has been framed between two extremes. On the one hand, there's the idea of transgression of shocking the, the, the dominant norms um, of, of being different. Um, and there's the, the whole question of being the same, even being assimilated, so that uh, it doesn't matter whether you're homosexual or, or heterosexual or 
the more extreme form of that, that all of us become like heterosexual. It seems to me that's a false polarity in, in the end because the historical shift that's taken place is not towards a limited range of, uh, of norms or patterns, but actually to a diversification mm. uh, of norms and, and patterns. And that seems to me the, the general drift of society, global society, not just in Britain. And the thing that strikes me is that people are prepared to do their own thing, but also wants to be accepted as perfectly ordinary, which is different, it seems to me, from assimilation. Mm. It's different from surrendering to the dominant heterosexual norms. It's just saying, this is who we are, and we want to be accepted for who we are. But there are different, many different ways of being who we are and of being ordinary. And to come back to same-sex marriage, that ultimately is, is what it's about. It's, it seems to me it's about the same rights for every individual in in our culture, which means you could choose to go this way or that way. You could choose marriage or not marriage, choose to cohabit or not to cohabit, choose to have uh, multiple relationships or, or lifelong partners. Being ordinary is actually about just being ourselves in the end. And I'm very struck by reading... Um, the, the new book by Brian Heafy and his colleagues about uh, same, the attitudes towards same-sex marriage amongst younger people. And that is very much, as, he as they emphasise in the book, about being ordinary. And the drift of all your people that you interviewed, it seems to me, is about being ordinary. They're not particularly interested in being transgressive or shocking the bourgeoisie. Uh, or frightening the horses in the street. It's just wanting to be accepted for who they are. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, one of the, you know, the the changes that I can see in the people I interviewed was um, some of the experiences that they might have had in growing up. Um, one of them that I interviewed was in his 60s at the time. And, and he talked about how when he was growing up, he saw very limited... Um, ideas of what what a gay man could be, and I think he used the phrase that you know he thought all gay men were leather-clad weirdos, or um, you know there was the sort of uh, stereotypes on television of the the camp entertainers like a lot of them mentioned people like Larry Grayson, and that that was the only form of identity there was, which was quite frightening for some of the people that interviewed. And you know if you fast forward to today, um, you see a very wide range of a much wider anyway range of gay characters, for example on on television programmes, on, on soaps in television, and they are actually quite ordinary. In the last couple of years, there was a, a same-sex marriage in EastEnders between two men, and, and the whole way that story was framed was very much about, interestingly, that, that one of the men had kissed another man the night before the wedding, and should that put the wedding in danger? And it struck me that that was very ordinary, in the sense that it was being presented as, you know, well, that's just, you know, that is a how a wedding would be presented on a television soap. There's a full transcript of this podcast on the Pod Academy website, podacademy.org, where you'll also find lots of other podcasts on academic research, from cinema to the science of volcanoes. Mm-hmm.